This is part two of our conversation with the design researcher Vish Chopra. If you haven't already, we recommend listening to part one first. Otherwise, let's get on with the show. I wanted to talk about like diversity in design. Um, just, just the backdrop of what's happened over the past couple of weeks. I think it's on this type of platform. It's, it's important to kind of highlight it and to talk about it. Mm. Um, yeah. yeah. And you know, especially as a person of color, I think it's important to, to highlight this kind of stuff. Um, and I kind of think it has some root in the future as well. So you know, what's happening? You know, not only in the U.S. but you know, in every city in the world near enough um that's challenging this you know this notion of institutional racism i think that's a fundamental force that's going to shape the future you know if we go back to this topic and point of the new normal well part of that is going to be you know how can we advance the cause of diversity and inclusion and what's really interesting is that this this formed kind of part of my work when i was doing some research into the future of work and we were looking at, you know, what are the markers of diversity today? And this is in 2018. So the traditional markers of, you know, diversity and inclusion are, um, you know, people of color, people of different ethnicities, um, people of different socioeconomic backgrounds. Um, those types of traditional markers where it's kind of easy to, you know, bring in people like that to prove that you're a diverse company or to provide diversity of opinion in your decision-making. Um, and what we found is that that's actually shifting. So what we what we kind of thought back then is that, you know, this first phase of diversity is a given, like people already started to, you know, hire people of color and, um, you know, have these types of markers, traditional markers of diversity in their business. It's already happened, at least we thought. Um, and in the future, um, it's kind of, sh it's going to shift essentially this, these, these markers of diversity are going to shift. So as long as, as well as having, you know, people of color and those traditional markers of diversity, we're going to have stuff like, you know, their lived experiences, you know, how is their upbringing? How is their education, the country that they lived in, the culture that they've lived in, regardless of what ethnicity they are? what's their cognitive uh, skill set you know how is their brain wired what type of problem solver are they are they creative are they logical um what's their emotional intelligence um that's the new marks of diversity and you know that was the original consumption and we thought and that's still the case like that's still going to be the future of diversity but what i think the last couple of weeks has really brought home is that unfortunately and this is especially the case in the design industry you know I don't think it's a diverse industry, but it can't escape um, the the spotlight that's been put on, you know, society at the moment, is that we haven't even, you know, fully grasped the first phase of this diversity. Yes, we've got people of color in, in businesses and in industries, and, in, and that's the case in the design industry. We're further ahead than, you know, other industries are in terms of, you know, how diverse and... Um, how we how we recruit from a global talent pool as opposed to a local one um, or a homogenous one. But I think it's important to shine a spotlight on the fact that there's a long way to go still. Most of the people 
and most of the companies that I work with, unfortunately, even though they're based in London, which is you know a global city, the majority of people there are from a completely different country and speak a different language in most cases. You know, they're still dominated, especially at the top, by unfortunately white older people from a different from a certain generation yeah. from a certain ethnicity in terms mm-hmm. of decision making you know in terms of it's not completely homogenous but and you do get lots of variation but i think at the top you don't you get to see kind of a consolidation of power within you know one type yeah. of ethnicity and it is a shame and it is a shame it's a real shame to have that yeah in our industry because we're we're always priding ourselves on the fact that we're forward thinking and that we're we're the innovators in terms of work and stuff. So um, I think it's interesting to highlight that. Like, I think, especially from my lived experience, um, and I think it applies to kind of like education as well. I think one of the things that I remember, I mean, I grew up in Stoke-on-Trent, so, you know, Mm -hmm. it's very, at least it was back in the noughties and the nineties, very homogenous, which is fine. You know, I enjoyed myself. I've had lots of friends, but you can never escape the fact that you're, different from other people and I thought that would change in university but it didn't Um, especially in design courses I still think those who are successful or those who get the most opportunity unfortunately um, are those who again are from a certain ethnicity and probably even the the sons of previous designers and and that kind of chain of uh is so if i think about clients that i work with for example fish i'll be honest with you i can't think of this is how i think how bad the problem actually is i can't think of a person that i've placed in a job of someone that's of color in the last six years mm. but actually if i actually sit down and think about it um it's, just, it's not through choice or anything like that. it's just the, the talent pool that is the talent pool that's there and that's mm. Um, in terms of expanding that pool, that's not in my remit. That's for people that you know, on the education side of things. I can't, mm, I can't create more more industrial designers. And just say one thing: um, as someone who receives CVs, um, they're from white men. Mm. That's, those are the CVs I get. Like, I don't know how far that goes. I mean, I don't, I don't know what more I can do with that. But I get CVs from white men. Yep. I think it goes. I think it's a, it's an issue that starts at, at the schooling kind of part of it all, where it's about encouraging that at a school level. Because by the time it gets to us, it is a little bit too late, unfortunately, if the talent isn't isn't there. Um, uh, um, and it's not just around color as well. It's a big issue around. It, it, well, you're actually right. It's just white men. Um, I can only think of Merle at Canada de Four. I, I can't really think of anyone else, to be honest with you, mm. um, who's a, in a senior position who is a, a female designer. I know, I know lots of female designers, but they're not necessarily, you know, going going through the system. I have to think about comments that I've had that have come through um, on, on this podcast. It's you know, really great to listen to you, but, you know, it was just another white guy from Brunel you know it'd be nice for you to start um to to start hearing from perspectives from 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 others so important as well as like you know uh we absolutely want to hear from everybody like this this podcast isn't done until we've heard from everybody and we've had that conversation Hmm. Uh, 
So if you don't identify as a white middle class male, <laughs> like knock down our door, like like talk to us because you, we want to hear from you. We want to hear from everybody, of course. Mm. Um, but like I know what my experience was. I don't need that backed up. I want to. I, I like. I want to. I, I genuinely want to hear about everybody else's. I, I like. I want to gain empathy for the uh, for like for everybody else's experience. Mm. Like I know mine. I'm done with that. It's a. It's a. It's a really interesting thing that you bring up because you know it doesn't just have ramifications for you know race relations in this country or inequality in this country, but it actually has power and root in decision-making. So I remember being on um, a workshop, how many months ago was it? Two months ago. Um, and, you know, it was me and two women and another person of color um, who went out to go do an innovation workshop with somebody. Um, it was very interesting. It was very good. We finally got some good problems. But I remember when we first got there, um, it was a very homogenous group of people. There were engineers, so you know it's always difficult dealing with an engineer anyway. Um, is that a different chat? You know, the trouble with engineers. That is a different chat. It's a different chat. <laughs> yeah, that's fed into it. But um, yeah. they think a very certain way. But anyway, it's. Um, I, I kind of dawned on me that the, the solution, we were ideating around a problem. The solutions that we're bringing up were very, very similar to what they've come up with before. And we got this comment from the person who hired us. They said, you know, these people think the same. They're engineers, but they're also, what we found out is that they're also thinking in the same respect in terms of their ethnicity and their lived experiences. And this was a product that we were designing or ideating around for a market that's very multicultural or at least people who are going to use it are going to be multicultural. So that kind of, you know, homogenousness in terms of um, having just the same bunch of people trying to ideate around a solution and coming up with very similar outcomes or very similar uh, solutions to these problems actually detrimentally affects innovation. It detrimentally affects the design of a product or a service because you're not bringing in other experiences to try and define that. Um, I think, yeah, it kind of starts in the education level and it sucks for you guys because then you're then starved of that talent. But then it also sucks for the companies because then they're starved of, of difference of opinion, of difference of mm. cognitive ability, of lived experiences. And that's where innovation thrives. If you have diversity and innovation, you can yeah. have amazing solutions, amazing products and an amazing business. I can give you some um examples actually um turn of the year um i came back from christmas i had a couple of companies that got in touch and was like brad we want to they recognized the problem and they wanted to increase diversity within their team and i had a few conversations in quite a short period of time so i thought i'd just pit that up on linkedin and i thought wow you know, this is amazing that you know maybe the pennies dropped and all, and all that kind of stuff mm. and it was the first and only time i've ever had a barrage of hate messages on LinkedIn, which is from people, different people in the industry. You know, why should, why are they going out of their way 
to just bring in female designers, for example. Why are they doing that? No, what, you know, it's, it's almost it's gone. And it was. I remember just being in the office at the time, and I was just talking to colleagues. I was like, I keep getting this message over and over again. I don't want to piss everyone off, but I just think they're all barking up the wrong tree here. Mm. Um, and and it was. I remember dealing with. Um, with I think it was LV or it was someone, and basically the product itself, fem- females use the product, so that is the, and there was like no one in the team was female, mm. and I find that quite extraordinary. That surely adding a female perspective to that does add a different dimension. Am I, yeah. speaking, am I, am I speaking out of line in saying that? But surely, like I, I can I can one hundred percent add to this, and again. This is why I don't want to mention the company that I work for. Yeah. <laughs> Before I joined that company, they designed a product, and, and like, and, the, and 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 my beloved boss that I work for, like, honestly, she and I were a unit. Um, Vish, I don't think you got to meet her, but <sighs> different story. Um, she was on maternity leave, and a large part of urinary catheter. Uh, product design happened while the only female in that department like she was absent so a room full of what eight men designed mm. a <laughs> character to be used by a f- and like a female human like I'm sorry guys but you don't get this you just don't get it and like and that's my analogy that i expand to mate you haven't lived this life you don't get it just accept you don't get it it's very true it is very true i think there's only so much that you can learn from you know learning from others um and trying to uh empathize with their experiences um and that's it's a skill set that designers have but ultimately you need to be able to compensate for that by including diversity into it diverse and um that's the only way you're going to get an innovation that actually works and that actually has value for the people that you're designing for um yeah i still find it extraordinary i said this the other week but i got i bought the new iphone humble brag um but a female average hand they can't they can't it's too big the the phone is too big for, for for an average hand of a female i just find that (laughs) <laughs> yeah it's um it's just it's just a bit weird isn't it when you think about it and i think you guys mentioned just, it before didn't you about how the the world is designed for males like it's not yeah term for it and what you use for it is quite interesting. well, it, well it, it's designed by males as well even even makes me laugh when i went to um and these are great designers by the way but even when i went to uh Years ago, I went to GHD, and and the, the the guy that ran the design team didn't have any hair. <laughs> you know, it's just little things like that that just kind of make you laugh, really. Um, not to say he wasn't doing a good job; he was doing a very good job. But it's still just something that kind of you kind of have this assumption that you'd go there, and that the majority of the team would be female. I don't. You just would think that, mm. and it's not the case. One of the unfortunate realities of being on furlough is that you are not working at five o'clock. So you have this unfortunate luxury of listening to these daily briefings. And Boris Johnson said yesterday, there was a question about the cruise industry. And I thought this would tie nicely onto the future of, obviously we said the future of the office, but the actual future of jobs itself. Mm. Um, 
And the question was asked about what does the future of the cruise industry look like? Clearly, he didn't know the answer. I don't think anyone does know the answer. But he said the words, it's going to be a period of self-reinvention. That was the phrase that he used for industries where it's almost looking within yourselves to find out what the future of said industry actually is going to look like. Mm. Um, And I thought I'd read you out some job losses that have happened over the last couple of weeks. So we've got Centrica. They've lost 5,000 jobs today. Um, British Airways, 12,000. Virgin, 3,000. McLaren, 1,200. Rolls-Royce, 9,000. BP, 2,000. Bentley, 1,000. Aston Martin, Monzo, P&O. I could go on and on and on about this thing. Um, Have you got any theories to the future of jobs? Will there be any jobs, Fish? What's the... There will, um, what, what does the future look like on that front? Because I remember you put on LinkedIn about the deepest the deepest recession in 3,000 or 300 years or whatever it was. Yeah. Is, is that a concern or is it something we should be really excited about? One of the things that I've always said from, well, at least on my social media pages, I've always been saying, is that the pandemic is split into these different things. Like we've got the short-term implications and the long-term implications. Um the short-term implications is the lockdown itself. You know, these are, it's kind of like a catalyst event where, you know, some of the things that we were envisaging that will happen over the next 10 years, happen overnight. Um, The behaviors from that might not stick forever, but the Mm. underlying consequence of the pandemic, so the long-term stuff, like the psychological impact that it's had on people, you know, either you're not working or you've experienced death, unfortunately. or the the health consciousness that everyone finds himself in now. But the other Mm. thing, the most key and critical thing that everybody should be paying attention to now, and I think the penny is starting to drop, is that we're in the worst recession that we've ever ever experienced as a country. It's like, I don't Mm. don't want to sound like over the top or exaggerate because I'm frankly not exaggerating. It's in 300 years, it's like, it's a lot. I think it was the OCED or something ED or whatever. They came out and said that our the economy, the UK economy, will be the worst hit of all the countries, and that's in a best case scenario. Yep. That's not in a worst case. Scenario. That's in the, in the best case scenario is we're going to be the worst hit economy yep. um, on the planet. So you're absolutely right in what you say. If it may or may not be the deepest recession in 300 years, but it's going to be a pretty painful one, isn't it? Uh, yeah, pretty much. And, and what's what's interesting about all of this is that. You know, we're told that we're, we have, like, we live in a capitalist country, right? So we have these natural cycles of whether the economy goes up and down. And then, you know, every generation or so, you have, like, a once-in-a-lifetime event where the economy either collapses or we do press the reset button on our industry. Um, and mm. I think that's what Boris Johnson is precluding to in terms of, you know, reinventing industries. But this is the second one we've had in 13 years. We're only just mm. getting over the first one that we had, which was obviously in 2007, which if you think about what the world was like before 2007 and how much it changed over the past 13 years. In the innovation industry, it's widely accepted that um, recessions, especially big recessions, are a catalyst for innovation or a catalyst for change, new industries to come, old mm. industries to disappear. Um, and that's exactly what's going to happen. But we don't know what the effect of that's going to be. I think the government was quite good in terms of like the furlough scheme, the the assistance and the loans that it's given to businesses, because, you know, 
I'm not a fan of the government at the moment, but one thing they got right is that they understood what the economic impact of this would be. Now, obviously, they were yeah. basing it on like, you know, a ABC, VW, whatever, bounce back recession, where it just goes straight down and it goes straight back up again and everyone's fine. It's not going to happen. It's more like yeah. a U-shaped recession where, unfortunately, people are going to lose jobs. Um, businesses are going to be unviable um, and people are going to have to learn and develop new skills. Mm. That for me, the furlough scheme is that I'm on, I'm, on, I'm on furlough right now. I feel like the furlough is the first part of a two-part thing. Mm. So furlough is, okay, we've protected you and we've given you a, some income for a allotted period of time. Now what we really need to start thinking about is the retraining of people. Mm. So these, this is where we believe the economy is going to grow over the next period of time. Let's start training people mm. in, in parallel to that. What, I have no idea what that may be, by the way. It was a bit like in 2008 when they said you've got to learn how to code, you know, and everyone started learning how to code. Yeah. Um, but That did pay off, though, to be fair. Yeah, so think think about the growth areas and then train people to whether it's about how to, um, you know, if there's going to be an ever-increasing use of robotics, you know, the maintenance of robotics and that kind of thing. So that there, there must be pockets of growth areas that they must think, right, we now need our people to to be trained in that way. Um, because mm. as a recruiter, it's pretty daunting when you hear about job losses of, of, of that kind of mass and it was quite concerning in a long-term thinking of shit is anyone actually going to have a job at, mm. at the end of this it is it is almost that extreme in terms of if we if we are to have be slightly realistic about it i mean i'm two australia's in and i'm sure drew's on his bottle of wine so that this is normally when these conversations start happening but <laughs> it, 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 it is it is a bit like that isn't it it's like shit you know i've been i've been working kind of you know, all my lot. Oh, I'm quite young, but I've given an example. My girlfriend's um, father. She's a he's a pilot. He works for Virgin. He has always wanted to be a pilot. He was in the Air Force. Uh, you know, his job's in, in in massive jeopardy. He's been doing it for the last thirty something years. All he has ever wanted to do since he was a little boy was be a pilot, and now that industry is almost shutting down. The psychological impact, as well as the okay, we need to train you and you know all that kind of stuff. And we've spoken about it before, Drew. You know, I was like, well, you've, you've always wanted to be a designer. It's something you've, it was almost like it was your calling. So how would how do we deal with that? It's people's calling. All of a sudden, you're saying, "Sorry, mate, that doesn't make any money anymore." That must be quite a daunting prospect for people that are thinking about their jobs. People on furlough right now that are just a bit like shit. You know, it's not just a case of oh, I'm waiting for the next job. It's like I actually need to completely retrain in what I'm doing. I need to a whole new career. So can I just throw one 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 quick thing because I really want to hear what vicious thoughts are on this. But there's just one thing that I want to like preset up is. Um, I haven't finished it yet, but I am going through uh, 21 lessons for the 21st century and other more exciting and interesting books keep jumping in because I'm finding 21 lessons so fucking hard. Because <laughs> essentially, the setup is, oh, you're not just going to be unemployed. You're going to be obsolete. Like, mm. you're not even needed as a consumer. It's like the thing you have, money that you can spend on things that, that the fascists want you to have – who cares? We can we can shortcut that. You don't need to be part of that decision making. And yeah, I mean, you've, like you've 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 framed it uh, for the for the whole thing. And 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 like I I I don't know. I don't I don't think anyone does. 
which is, which is probably part of the problem. <laughs> so what we've seen previously is that, okay, horses got replaced by, uh, by engines and then humans got replaced by robots and now creativity is maybe being uh, replaced by... If, if it's not happening now, I mean, it's happening in chess, um, that AI chess players are far more creative than the uh, repetitive human players. And we're talking about chess masters here. Um, and again, I'm only quoting the book. This is not something I don't know about chess. What the fuck am I? Um, but like, uh, yeah, over to you, Vish. I think I've teached <laughs> I don't need a question. You just go. You just go. I, 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 got, I got that trajectory. I think I get it. Um, there are a couple of things there. So <laughs> I think to Drew's point, um, you know, I think as creativity goes, there are other industries that are going to get massively disrupted. And, you know, within the next year, maybe they might even not, you know, exist. But um, mm. to relate it back to the design industry, I think we're actually quite resilient. Um, one, because we're so flexible and so adaptable. Like we've been the one industry that's been so easy to adapt into uh, working from home because we did it before, we pioneered it. Um, and I think that's the case with jobs in the design industry and skills because, yes, creativity might get replaced by AI at some point, but it's one of the safest skill sets that you can have. And every designer has it. You know, to be able to problem solve in a creative way is an innate part of being a designer. So I think in the design industry, we're going to see, you know, consultancies and businesses plummet, but they will put themselves back up because it's always going to be a valuable skill to have and it's always going to be a future skill that we're always going to need but to brad's point in terms of like the the wider economy and is there any jobs going to be left you know to the point of your girlfriend's um your girlfriend's dad who's a pilot you know we've seen this before unfortunately where uh, and you saw it in the 80s with like the miners and stuff, you know, where... I think, yeah, the miners, that's what I was kind of, yeah, yeah that kind of similar kind of cycle. Go on, it sorry. just disappears, doesn't it? It's like, um, mm. from. I mean, that wasn't, that was largely from political consequence as opposed to economic consequence. But, you know, regardless of what the driver is, the world is always changing and is always renewing itself in a certain way. And part of that, and unfortunately, part of the, the economic system that we live in means that people are going to get left behind. And we didn't really handle it that well last time because, you know, we wouldn't be talking about towns that have been left behind in the north and in North Wales because that's the consequence of that. Um, so I think there's an imperative to get it right this time. And there are yeah. pockets of growth. There's always going to be pockets of growth. And there's going to be a lot of them. You know, we've got a lot of stuff that we need to sort out with our planet, with our with our society. So I think one of the things that can really help us to grow and to also kill two birds with one stone is to invest in a green recovery. So mm. I know sustainability is like a, a thrown about word and environment, but you know, we have these two massive problems where you've got loads of people who are unemployed. And in addition, you know, yeah. we need to build something ridiculous, like 2 million um, charging electric charging points every year or something like that. Or, you know, we need to switch over every single home central heating system to something that's more sustainable that we haven't even invented yet. And if you can make a ventilator from scratch in three weeks, why can't we apply the same level of thinking, the same level of disruption that we've just experienced? Because we know that we can adapt to it because we already have. So why don't we apply that to 
seeing ourselves out of this recession and out of into a recovery. Yeah. I, I find this this this, this sustainability or discussions always quite interesting because it's one of them where I wholeheartedly agree with you. But then on the flip side of it, does it make any money? And we as a planet have always, it's always about making money. Mm. And if you look at Dyson and the electric car, amazing achievement, it, it wasn't going to make any money. So they, they, they scrapped it. Mm. So with what's happening, does it now, is it going to now be starting to be feasible from a profit perspective of we can actually start making money from this thing as well in terms of pushing sustainability? Because that's the unfortunate reality oh, of it. yeah. it's all, it's all great saying, yeah, we're going to make this thing sustainable, but that means it's going to cost more money. And if people mm. are going to be out of jobs, they're not going to have as much money in their back pocket. There is that balance to strike, isn't there, between making something sustainable and making sure people actually buy the thing. Definitely. I think that's why it's a mixture between stuff that we've got to do in terms of the market and stuff that we've got to do in terms of like regulation. So either to subsidize some of this stuff, you know, we're spending billions mm. every single month on subsidizing people's wages. We can do the same with subsidizing yeah. the planet. Um, but also I think uh, the Dyson car is an interesting point. I think that's one example of, um, oh, yeah. of it failing, but I think generally it's um, like, if you look at Tesla, for instance, you know, they've just created a million kilometer battery. Um, that they're going to start rolling out in their cars. Does does it turn a profit though, Tesla? Uh, not yet. I don't think so. But there's future. There's a future. I don't think it's about that. I don't think that Tesla um, is is about that. I think it's a cultural shift. Like the stuff that he's. I mean, if you look at um, Elon Musk's motivations, um, I mean, all right. You, if every company didn't make a profit, then what's the point? If every company adopted that mindset of, mm. of Tesla, then what's the point? Okay, so what uh, what are you in business for? Like, it comes down to this question. Um, what are you in business for? Do you want to be a blue chip or do you want to pay for, you know, fish fingers five times a night? Uh, five, sorry, five nights a week. Uh, just, you know, get by. Do you want to do something that's just fucking better? Do you want to be an artist? Do you want to be, um, yeah, a capitalist? Or, 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 I mean, there's got to be a, a, a sliding scale for that. Um, now, I don't know enough about Elon Musk, and I, and I know that there's a lot oh, of... Oh, he'll be coming on, don't worry. He'll be coming on. He's on next week, isn't he? <laughs> yeah. I think, I think we, we got him booked for episode 12, right? So yeah. keep... <laughs> <laughs> it's the Johnny, the Johnny Ive Elon Musk special, isn't it? We're getting yeah, them both yeah, on. Amazing. <laughs> You <laughs> borrowed ideas from and, and a name from Nikola Tesla, which is better. Um, let's, let's find it out. Um, yeah, um, I think you have a good. I, I think you have a good point, Drew, in terms of like you know, is profit the end all and be all of everything? I don't think it is. I think you see more companies like look at the triple top line as opposed to the triple bottom line now. Um, and I think you know. So do you think we do you think we're shifting away from that kind of? that capitalist is a word in terms of about, about money no i think i think to use boris johnson's phrase we're probably reinventing it um okay in that it's part of the mission in terms of what a company exists for but it's also mm. overlapping with a company's responsibility to people and a company's responsibility to the environment and you've got all these three metrics that now become just as important to each other because uh, if you take them individually and they can't survive for very long on their own, you have to consider these things more holistically. Um, but I think, you know, in the future, 
and in the rising in the really the coming future you're going to see some of these sustainability you know, organizations and startups products and services actually turn more of a profit than the okay. industries that they're replacing because you can you can take an example of um the uh the, the the wind towers that you see the wind turbines um you know the electricity that they generate is actually because of economies of scale they've gone down so much that it's actually like cheaper than most of the forms of um power generation um mm. so that's an example of how you know you just have to give it a bit of time to let the economies of scale come in and that's i think why especially investors are so hyped about some of these companies like tesla for instance, because it's not it will it will eventually one day make a yeah, profit. Yeah, it's like the earning potential now is a bit naff, but you know, in the future, this could make me extremely rich because so many people yeah. will need it, and that's it's like answering a future need, isn't it? So, but again, the effect that it has on the likes of Ford, like, do you remember? I know there was a, there was a brief period. There was maybe a week at the start of January where things were the same as they were in 2019, except it was the the start of a new year, so we're going to advertise all this new shit that you're going to get. And I guarantee you, every car company was talking about, guys, we've got electric cars, and they're they're hot, right? They're sexy. We've got a Mustang, and it's electric. And you can still still have a car that, all right, basically, if you're driving it, you're going to look like a prick. (laughs) <laughs> oh shit we were still hanging on to from fucking 50 years ago like okay that was that was generationally specific then but like who's buying a fucking mustang no <laughs> fish come on is it the end of mustangs fish oh i'm do you know what i think it might be the end of ford or you know some especially some of the american car companies <laughs> I mean, that's a very big okay. statement. I, don't, I probably want to backtrack on that Ooh. a bit. Ford have actually been quite innovative <laughs> in terms of... The more controversial I can be, the better it's, it's, uh, it grabs attention. But anyway, it's, um, I, I don't know. I think what it's they're the, doing... It's the end of Apple. It's the end of Adidas. It's the end of... <laughs> I, think, um, I think the Mustang is quite an interesting point, though, like this Ford Must, the electric Ford Mustang. I think what they're doing is a bit of greenwashing. Like, you know, everybody, okay, whoever loves the Mustang they'd probably have an audience somewhere. Um, you know, it's great. We love this car. It's been around for like 50 years. Let's put an electric motor in with Kilbert, two birds with one stone. But actually, no, like you're being surpassed by the likes of Tesla and these other companies, especially Chinese companies, because they're not just thinking about putting an electric motor in something. They're thinking about the whole system approach to how they can change a car and how they can change mobility so that you don't yeah. need to have a car or you don't need to have certain materials in the car. It's not just about reducing the emissions from a car it's about you know why can't how can we use not use tires for instance because actually a big chunk of emissions comes from tires and the friction that they cause um yeah and the engines and when you open and close a car door you know that kind of stuff um and the materials yeah. that they've made out of so i think that's one thing that you know the likes of ford and some of these other company car companies really need to think about if they want to get serious about investing in a green recovery and being around in the next 10 years then they don't only need to match the likes of tesla and some of these other companies in terms of what they're doing but secede that so that you know they're not just greenwashing stuff they're actually making stuff that is going to contribute to you know 
society's goal of becoming net zero and to have a, a planet that we can all enjoy yeah what's what amazed me actually was um even during the period of lockdown we were still two percent off our emissions target or something like that mm. as, a, as a planet like even though one point something billion people were not doing anything we still didn't hit the target so <laughs> it, like that's quite concerning isn't it <laughs> it's a perspective isn't it it's um yeah Right before lockdown, I sold my diesel car, bought a hybrid, and then since haven't driven it. And if we're still, <laughs> we're still that far, I'm like, dude, come on. Like, what else is going on? I'm a, I am an advocate, though, for, I don't know if this would be great for the, what, great for people, but every year, that for one week of year, we all go into lockdown. Mm, it's just yeah. a, as, a, as, a, as a period of self-reflection. Um, yeah. Maybe the first week of January every year, start of a new year, we all go into lockdown for a, for a, for a week. Um, I think that would be quite therapeutic <laughs> um, to just do it for for a week. I think everyone can say they're probably not going to come out of lockdown the same person they did going into it. So I I think it is it is quite a personal sort of journey, isn't it? Yeah, 100%. Mm. So we've talked before this a little bit about um, some of the emotional intelligence and uh, self-improvement or self-help, whatever, uh, kind of books that we've talked about. Mm. Is that something that you encompass as well because, or that you, do, that you look at as well because, I mean, it can't all be economics, right? No, no, it can't all be economics. I think the other side of this is, you know, the psychological impact of being in lockdown, not doing your regular things that you do every day and also having this amazing opportunity to change yourself, to better yourself and improve yourself. Um, I mean, that's like, you know, a very wishy-washy version of it. Not everybody has the energy or mental state at the moment to do that. But if you do have, or if you can push yourself to go for a jog, you can maybe push yourself to read a book or to learn a new skill or, you know, there's always something that people have nagging at the back of their minds in terms of, you know, how they want to improve themselves, either in their professions or in their daily lives. Is there anything that you've worked on for you? Oh, me? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I've been revisiting um, some of my research that I did a couple of years ago with the future of work. I've got a series of um, blog posts that I'm writing on Medium. Um, mm -hmm. I'm hopefully going to get them uh, sort of co not co-author but kind of co-sponsored on some of the uh consultancy websites that i'm in my network um just do a bit of outreach um because you know as a freelancer you know we're the first to kind of experience the dip whenever stuff like this yeah. happens so and because i'm used to these dips and the high points and the low points it's um you get used to and you get into a habit of using free time to kind of do the stuff that is in the back of your head so for me it was you know revisiting some of this stuff that i did a year ago because it's all changed now so brad's view for design truth is to have those kind of posts and have those kind of um open discussions so if you've got something that lends itself to that as a, as a discussion starter like I would love to see that. I'd love to read that. I'd, I'd... I'd be more than happy to do. I mean, part of the the stuff that I've been talking about is going to be covered in these blog series. Um, and it's kind of like understanding what it's, it's kind of about a reference point for this new normal. It's kind of like, what is it going to be in the future? What does it mean for different industries? Um, how, and I've actually used some examples of, you know, 
being a designer and innovator, one of the fun things that you get to do is like ideate around problems. So it's one thing that I want to do is just, uh, I've already started doing is looking at some of these future problems that we'll have and how they can be solved by different industries and actually tying the names to different companies that already exist to see how they, like the WeWork Cafe, for instance. Yeah, in terms of the problems, what, what kind of stuff have you looked at so far? So I've put together some kind of like drivers that go towards, so I've got these two kind of like groupings where you've got a short-term impact where it's more like the lockdown. So it's kind of like, you know, short-term behaviors that probably everyone's going to sling back to their some kind of normality as soon as it's over because you know most of the behavior shifts are coping mechanisms and the other one's more long term where you know we discuss stuff about the economy and how that fosters innovation but also the long-term behaviors that are going to come out of the psychological impacts of the pandemic um and then i kind of map them towards some drivers so some of the drivers are like you know digital transformation for instance where businesses are having to quickly adapt to new digital ways of working and you know, what does that mean for collaboration and face-to-face communication? Um, uh, Localism is one where we've talked about that. So, you know, where value is placed on local goods and services, where people want to, you know, stay closer to the home and um, invest in their local infrastructure and their local businesses a bit more. Um, well, an interesting one, actually, which is a bit more long-term, is looking at health and well-being. So, you know, that that was like a big trend before this started, I think now that the pandemic's kind of put a spotlight on safety of health and well-being for everybody, I think one thing we're probably going to see is this emergence of health experience. So, you know, people always bang on about customer experience and all that, but and you've got designers for that looking at CX and as a UX crossover. But you can almost imagine a world where you're thinking about the health experience of someone, their individual health experience, when they deal with your business or product or service. Um, so that was something that I'm looking at. And sustainability uh, as well. So, you know, what are the short-term environmental wins and, you know, how can these be translated into more of a long-term green recovery? Um, so there's stuff like that. And I've kind of got this whole section that's going to be on about you know, seven innovations for the future. So looking at each of these drivers and um, kind of ideating around them and trying to figure out, you know, what kind of products or systems or new business models could emerge from this if this was the future. Um, and then, you know, I'm going to do some illustrations and hopefully it'll look really cool and it provides a good piece of content. Um, so it should be Timeless it should be cool. content as well, I suppose. I hope so, yeah. So question do you run sort of do you plan to run workshops around this because you're talking about things that i know that the company that i work for are interested in um and like uh, as as a as someone who's in this industry i know there's going to be a ton of other companies that are going to be interested in this stuff so Mm. are you planning to run workshops around this not not just blogs I think the blogs are the starting point, whatever springboards off of that, whether it's workshops okay. or anything else um, would be good because I mean, that's, uh, that's kind of the point of it. Like it's not just for me to promote myself. It's more about how can okay. I as an innovator help companies at this time? Um, no, I mean, I'm just listening to this thinking, I need you, I need to get you and your insights <laughs> into projects that I'm working on. And I dare say, 
uh, even if it's not you, let's 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 broaden it out. Like, so let's not just do a like, hey, uh, everybody go and go, Uncle Bish. Um, find a design researcher. Find someone who's good, who's looking at this stuff that's 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 broader than um, just the, the the project that you're working on. Mm. Bring them in, have a workshop with them, like collaborate. Some of the words that you've talked that you've used, and some of the areas that you've you've discussed. Things that I'm trying to enact, and I mean, I, I know that you and I have worked together recently, so you know what I'm talking about. Um, yeah, okay, let's 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 do that. And, and, and honestly, like, leave this conversation in because this is what I mean. Like, this is the bit that we uh, we need to we need to promote. If it's not like one person, it's a, it's the ideal of like we need to do an awful lot more uh, signal boosting of design research. Definitely, I think um, having someone you know, outside of a company to provide fresh opinion and different opinion, I think is really key to kind of overcoming some of these challenges that we're going to be facing because they can't just be solved by one team or one company. It's got to be, you've got to kind of like cross collaborate in that sense, I think. Um, So yeah, I mean, yeah, I'm more than happy to have a conversation about that. That'd be cool. Yeah, amazing. And on the broader top topic of that, of having uh, you know external design resource, if you're an in-houser, uh, which I know that some of our listenership are, um, like traditionally, I mean, it's, it's a long time ago, but when I uh, was when I was first working as an in-house designer, and knowing that the company that I worked for wanted to hire external designers, uh, an external resource. Uh, it can be seen as a challenge, and what I want to say is that that it's it's absolutely not. It's a signal boost for design. It's an enabler. It's credibility that you can add, and you can go like look at the, all the cool and, and imaginative work that these guys have done. And this is kind of the same sort of thing that we're thinking about too. It's, it's yeah, it's a fantastic level. Use it as a as a stage, as a as a highlighter. Definitely. Um, and I think like, you and I, Vish, work together. Um, yeah, I, I, I definitely took an awful lot of that. Like you guys had resource and 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 the, the the research that you did just added so much to the kind of ideas that we already had and boosted so many more. It was, it was fantastic. It was one. Of, it was a great experience in my career. Oh, I'm glad. That's really nice. Thanks, Drew. <laughs> uh, yeah, there's no video, but Vish, I guarantee, is blushing right now. I am, and I never blush. It's like. <laughs> I legitimately am. So thank you very much for it. That's uh, it's it's nice because you get comments like that from clients, and it's um, it just really like reaffirms that this isn't just a job for me. It's um, yeah. it's a passion. I hate using that word. It's a passion, um, and it's kind of like it's not. Yeah, okay. Working for a client is good because you get to put it on LinkedIn and stuff, and you got to talk about it in some respect. But you're actually fundamentally making a difference, especially with innovation, yeah. like. You can have such a massive impact on working in innovation um, and you can literally transform, you know, a company's approach to either itself or to the products and services that it's selling. It's that powerful. Um, And I always advocate, especially for like, you know, people who like me weren't too sure about being industrial designers or designers, like the the skills that you learn at university mean that you can go into a, you know, a breadth of different professions. And I would always advocate that if you are good at coming up with ideas or you have a personality that is intrinsically, you know, curious and questions everything, then innovation is like 
the one thing you should get into because it's rewarding and it's just like really fun it's really really fun have you got any advice for anyone that want, would want to get into design research any industrial designers that think oh, oh, i just don't want to do industrial design anymore have you got any advice mm, for them? i think um i mean if you wanted to do it um i'd probably say rather than just going to design research i think there is a more interesting intersection between like research and innovation that i sit in um so i think that's if you're going to aim for something like that if you wanted to do what i do then that's probably the best thing but to get there i think um every and i said it before every designer kind of has you know an inbuilt ability to think creatively and to solve problems um you know if you don't have that then it's difficult to to do your job it's difficult to call yourself a designer so if you if you have that um it's actually really easy just to kind of drift over to whatever type of profession within the industry that you want to and i think if you want to specifically get mm. into innovation i think it's um if you wanted to work in innovation i think the starting point would be like design strategy for instance or work yeah. at a consultancy that has a reputation for human-centered design because that's has a very close relational link to innovation um yeah and also invest in those skills yourself like if you're not being taught them you know, fair enough, not every university is the same and the quality of education that you receive isn't going to be the same in every university in this country. But, you know, you've still got time to go and learn stuff yourself. I think, you know, mm. you've got time now. You're not going to get a job straight away. Um, and if you do, congratulations. But the vast majority of people aren't. So go and learn something and go and teach yourself about these things that maybe you didn't learn at university. So what I would say to that is the biggest helpful the most helpful book that i've had as a as a textbook as a grown-up designer um <laughs> thank you for that, um, is the uh the field work guide to human-centered design um by ideo nice. um have you got any better have you got any, any more to ask to that as well like different different uh textbooks reading books reference books yeah so the one thing that changed my life and the one thing that, well, my career life, and one thing that kind of really got me into innovation, I think, um, was when I was interning at PDD in 2013. They had just started developing that process for human-centered design, and they were using a framework by a company called Luma. So it's a U.S. company um, that kind of got spun off by Maya Design. Um, and it's basically, it's, it's very, very similar to what IDEO teach. Um, but it's just a bit more uh, actionable and it's, it's much more flexible. Okay. Um, and the design methods that you get and the tool set, they're, they're evolving and you can get accredited in it. Um, you can become a practitioner um, or, a, or a teacher if you wanted to. Um, but I've always used those methods and whatever, everything that I do. Um, and I'm grateful for that because nobody else knows about it so it kind of gives me a bit of an edge um so i you know i don't really care about sharing it here because i think it's a brilliant book and everyone should read it and everyone should practice the methods that are in it um but yeah, yeah that's, that's, that's mine thank you very much no you're welcome on our next episode i think we've got um is it stephen green is he is he coming on we know um, I don't know if it's if it's the next episode, but I know that he has agreed to uh, to come on from Beda. Um, so current CEO of Beda. Okay. Um, yeah, yeah. So I used to be a board member um, nice. until I moved 
Switzerland. Like they're sort of uh, one of the one of the big roles that Beta occupy at the moment are the link between academia and industry. Mm. Um, so, I guess I mean I, this could be a regular section, Brad Emma. Um, questions for the next guest from our current guest, Mish. Go. Yeah. <laughs> CEO of Beda, listening. He's you've you've got his ear. What do you want to ask? I think it's I think what organisations like that need to do a bit more of, um, and it's not shaming them in any way. But I think not many designers are aware that there are those types of organisations and those types of because um, what are they called? They've got an official name. It's like you can get associations, associations. You know, like industry specific associations. Um, not yeah. every like someone someone you go to if something goes wrong and they are your kind of governing body almost yeah governing yeah, yeah. body exactly no one really understands or knows that they exist like you you have almost like the false ones like um that don't really play that role but play something other like another role so like um like the design council for instance or um you know, institutions like that that are more public facing um but I think I think awareness is one thing, but I think the way that you get to that is that you do more engagement with the universities because I never heard about BIDA until I was outside of university. Um, and I only heard from it because I was following the IDSA on LinkedIn and that popped up as a fault as a, an additional um, follow that I could do and I did it and I was like, oh, I didn't realize you had a British association of that as well. That's interesting. Um, so it's, mm. it's stuff like that. It's kind of like you don't want to just rely on organic awareness. I think you know there's much more that you know associations like that could be doing in terms of um, you know recruiting people or getting people more interested in talking to their community and developing more of a community, especially with young designers, because they're the least likely to kind of go into these um, types of affiliations because you know we're not really used to being you know in unions or anything not that that's a union but that kind of community feel we're not used to it so it'll be good to for them to have some outreach with with young designers yeah we had win jones on and um he was talking about he was kind of comparing it to architects mm. and the architects have this almost like accreditation to them that you go to and you become chartered you know yeah, yeah. You go to bigger and be a chartered industrial designer you know there is a chartered technical product designer uh role out there which is uh oh, I say role um but accreditation which is out there and has been since about 2015 but that's via the uh institute of engineering designers um so the ied um but what they want is not necessarily aligned to what an industrial designer is. Um, so they want, like I say, a technical product designer uh, type of type of role. Um, and they want to see evidence of the of, of those kind of things. They don't necessarily want to see the. Um, so I would say that the difference between a product designer and a, an industrial designer is that an industrial designer doesn't necessarily have to design products. Um, they're looking at what are you, what are your user needs and how do we address those, um, and that could be a service. It could be, I mean, it, like it could literally be anything. Whereas a product designer is there is a product at the end of that, and whilst the product can be uh, vague in its definition, um, yeah, it's more of a digital term now, isn't it? Talk to that product, 
Um, so that's that's my definition of it. Over the next couple of years, what you're going to see, well, from my predictions, you're going to see a lot more industrial designers want to move into digital product design mm. um, as, a, as a career path. It pays more money. Mm. Um, and it's just, I think it's just generally what people want to do if I was to speak to anyone of a certain age. Um, so for me, the role of bidder should be to be that almost encouraging point for universities that you don't just have to design apps for banks. You know, you, you can still design physical stuff and you know and it's still pretty fun so it should almost be that what what would be great is if it was formulated of people that like win that win was on here before i'm sure he'd still love to be involved in it it's just he got drowned away from it so and win's idea of design education bish was basically you get the best people within industry and fuck the 9k a year thing and just they teach you mm-hmm. um that was his idea so you get priestman good you get say more power Canada for and they just do a design course and you go on that course um, yeah. and you pay a little bit less money um, and that is going to be your a better quality of education than if you go for a traditional know, like Brunel or, or yeah, you know, yeah, Northumbria yeah. or whatever it, it, a more industry focused um, academia he was like I could do that and I thought, I thought that was just an interesting model maybe yeah. bidders should just be full of people that are at the top of their game in industry just sharing that insight to, 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 to helping the next generation of designers coming through the system. I think, I think that would be quite nice because you've got such a large separation between students and these top flight companies. Like the, mm. especially if you don't go to Loughborough or Brunel or the RCA, like your exposure to these companies is minimal. Like you don't know, yeah. how, especially if you're like a, a first or second year graduate um, student, you know, you're not necessarily, you don't fully understand how these companies work or, you know, what they actually do properly or what the process is. Um, and if you're not at those, you know, top flight universities, you're not going to learn about that process anyway, unless yeah. you're looking yeah. enough to have an internship. So anything that closes the gap between that, those those, those two extremes would be beneficial, so much, so much beneficial. It would be, it would be brilliant. Yeah, I'd yeah. really like to see an online free six-week course that is just, if you're design-adjacent, here's the stuff you need to know. If you're, and then at the end of that, if you're super interested, here's where you go next. Mm. And I mm. don't think that necessarily has to be uni. I think it's just like post-1997, you know, Tony Blair and all of that and Britpop and the, <laughs> the culture of Andy was. I mean... For you guys, because you're all 10 years younger than me, um, was a time when... Uh, it was a good time, wasn't it? Yeah, it was, a, it, was a, it was a wonderful time. Oasis was a band. Ah, yeah. yeah. And people thought they were good. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and aside, aside from that, like, um, yeah, we had this sort of radical, very bland politics that came in and swept aside the... Um, other type of very bland politics, um, and, and and suddenly everything felt possible. Anyway, I digress. <laughs> so, Bish, not to uh, not to wrap this up because honestly, I'm like I'm I'm in this, and I could do this for another two hours. Um, but I appreciate everyone's got lives to lead, and including our listenership as well. Um, and Vish, I want to give you a platform, if I may, sure, to just like. Get across the the burning issue like what's the thing like 
what has Brad got to put on LinkedIn to say, hey, like, stop what you're doing. Fish has something to say. Sure. I think as a recap, I think to summarize probably everything we've kind of discussed, I think, you know, the future is very difficult to predict. And part of my job isn't to predict it. It's trying to understand what it could be and what are the forces that are shaping that future. And, you know, there's a lot of different factors in that. We've discussed that. And I think what's really important, if we're going to take a couple of things out of this, is that there are a lot of people at the moment talking about how the lockdown is the main thing that's causing behavioral change. That's not the case. It's going to be the underlying economic situation that we're in and the you know the psychological behaviors that are being built over this pandemic. How those two things interplay is really going to shape the world that we're going to live in in the next 10 years. And in addition to that, I think having diversity in the workplace and having diversity in, in innovation is only going to add to the success of those innovations that come out of, you know, all of this anxiety and all of this, um, all of the issues that we're, that we're going to be facing over the next decade. So I think that's, that's quite important to say. So I think if you, from an innovator's perspective, I think it's going to be an interesting decade. Um, but there's a lot of things that we can do to make it a better future. Um, so, yeah. Well, thank you for that. Cool. Yeah, thank, you guys. thank you. Yeah, we've covered the future. Um, we've tried <laughs> to keep. We're, we're trying to make these podcasts shorter, and then all of a sudden, we've been speaking yeah, for two hours. <laughs> we, 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 we've spoken for two hours and fifteen minutes, which is a bit of a concern. But we'll. Um, but um, yeah, really appreciate you for, for coming on this. It's all about getting different um, perspectives, um, and um, we've certainly done that with. Um, the chat today which is nice and it was nice that it was a little bit more positive mm. um than the linkedin post i saw from you a couple of weeks ago which was about the deepest recession <laughs> in 300 years and i was quite concerned that you were just going to come on and just be doom and gloom Doomsday but scenario. You, <laughs> yeah i was tempted <laughs> but, but you've sort no. you've sorted out the we work situation um there's one billion pound idea there so appreciate that nice and um if anyone else is listening to this and has got their own ideas about the future of the world and just seriously get in touch um we're happy to to get back to you i mean i'm on furlough so i've got nothing else better to do so uh, yeah <laughs> and uh yeah thanks for listening even to that one person in barbados who'd have thought we'd make it to barbados drew it's pretty uh <laughs> i know we might go like oh. if anybody <laughs> our workshop then uh, we, we can figure it out right <laughs> one live recording in barbados maybe next season we'll yeah. see what we can do but yeah. yeah thanks for that cheers thank you very much thanks, thanks for joining cool thank you guys see ya see you soon bye joining us for this two-parter with Vish Chopra. He is the epitome of what we're about here at Design Truth. We want to hear about every aspect of the industry and his input as a design researcher has been fascinating. As always, we would love to hear from you. Email us hello at designtruth.co.uk or visit our website www.designtruth.co.uk. Thank you all for listening. See you on the next episode.